0: This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the son of God. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the spirit who testifies because the spirit is the truth. There are three that testify, the spirit, the water and the blood, and the three are in agreement. We accept human testimony, but God's testimony is greater because it is the testimony of God, which he has given about his son. Whoever believes in the son of God accepts this testimony. Whoever does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because they have not believed the testimony God has given about his son. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life.
1: Well, good evening, everyone. Uh, it's a privilege to be sharing with you this evening. Uh, I'd encourage you to keep uh, your Bibles open or your phones or whatever you're using to read God's Word, uh, just to read along as as we go through this together. Uh, so in this journey that we've been going through so far in this, in this book, this letter, uh, the author, John, he has highlighted the indispensable hallmarks of true believers. The evidence of authentic Christian faith. The previous paragraph that we read at the end of chapter four of this letter ends with a statement of our duty. If we're to love God, then we should love our brother and our sister also. Today's passage extends this to obedience to Christ's commands. These verses concentrate on the nature of Christian faith and how it's evidenced in the life of the one who believes. So so far John has spoken a lot about love and obedience but not so much about faith and in today's passage the emphasis now shifts to believing in the son and of one John's 10 references to believing seven appear here in uh, chapter five. So belief and love these two great themes these two great ingredients of Christianity are brought together in these verses. For Christians neither faith uh, belief or love are optional extras. They're two pillars on which all true Christian experience rests. So important. I've titled uh, tonight's message: "Faith in the Sun Leads to Life." And I've split it into two sections. The first section is the first five verses, uh, where faith keeps God's commands, and then we'll move on to the remaining seven. Uh, faith accepts God's testimony. So here's a brief overview of the first five verses. Verses one and two say that we cannot believe in Jesus Christ without loving the father and his children. Verses two to four go on to say we cannot love the father without obeying his commands and overcoming the world. And then verses four and five, we cannot overcome the world without believing in Jesus Christ. So this opening paragraph begins and ends with belief. And in between is love and obedience. And the link between these all is new birth. Faith, love and obedience is evidence of the natural growth which follows a birth from above. Let's look at this phrase together that John uses in verse one, born of God. He elaborates in his gospel that he wrote. John 1, 12 to 13 says this. Yet to all who did not receive him sorry, to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. This makes really clear, doesn't it, that being born of God is quite different from natural birth. It's something that's initiated by God and it's implemented through his Spirit. And it takes place hand in hand with faith in Christ. So let's briefly look at these three themes, love, obedience and overcoming. The first theme is that we should be marked with love, verses one to two. Jesus laid down the priority of love in his two greatest commandments that he provided. In Mark's gospel, it's recorded in chapter 12, and it says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There are no commandments greater than these. So John likely has in mind also a natural law of human life, family love. I've heard that uh, new parents uh, don't take very long to uh, grow to love their young babies despite the noise and other things going on. Um, but children, they grow, don't need to love their parents? Uh, just as naturally, they love their brothers and sisters also. The second part of verse one paraphrase says, if we love a father, we also love his child. So the love that naturally binds us to our parents usually extends to our parents' other children also. In the realm of Christian thought and experience, Christians undergo the process of being reborn. The father is God, and Christians are bound to love God for all that he has done for them. But this birth is into a family, and Christians are reborn into the family of God. Jesus describes in Mark's Gospel, chapter 3, that those who do the will of God, as he himself did, become his mother, his sisters, and his brothers. So. If then, if Christians love God the Father who created them, then they must also love the other children to whom God is Father. Love of God and love of Christian brothers and sisters are parts of the same love, opposite sides of the same coin. They are intimately interlocked. They're inseparable parts of the same experience. But the second theme, walking in obedience, verses 2 to 3. Keep reading with me. Love for God has a second inescapable consequence, namely obedience. Verses two to three teach us that if we truly love God, we not only love his children, but we find ourselves carrying out his commands. In verse three, we see that love for God is not an emotional experience, but more of a moral commitment. It's always practical and active. Love for our brothers and sisters expresses itself with actions and in truth. As we've studied earlier in chapter three of this letter, it says, if, every, if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. This is the sort of love we need to have for our brothers and sisters. John certainly doesn't imply that obedience to God's commandments is easy to achieve. Christian love is no easy matter. Uh, It's a sacrificial service. Uh, But Jesus, he demonstrated a mastery in this and is our perfect example for us to follow. We can demonstrate our love for others by being aware of the needs of our brothers and sisters around us. And we heard from Phil this week in the video that he he did for us. I hope you've seen it. Uh, Check it out afterwards if you haven't. But he said in this that we have a great opportunity at this stage of the pandemic to start reaching out to people and practice hospitality with one another. So who perhaps could you invite into your home this coming week or garden hopefully if the weather's good. Let's now turn to verse three where it says we should not find it difficult to express our love in obedience to God because his commands are not burdensome. I think it's a common misconception that people often think that Christianity is about rules. It's about commands that must be followed in order for God to accept us. This is a lie. Don't believe it. Obedience is about love, not fulfillment of obligation. To profess love for God, but to fail to obey his commands is nonsense. It shows that we're actually thinking that his commands are a bore, a chore, or a heavy load. But what does that say in turn about our attitude towards God himself? Let me ask you a question Do you think that the wings of a bird are burdensome? No, they're designed to bring out a function flight. The bird applies effort, and its wings provide lift and maneuverability. It's not a burden, but it's a liberation, a discovery of what it was made for. And God's commands, similarly, are no more burdensome. They are the means by which we can live in freedom and fulfillment. It's the will of an all-wise, all-loving father who seeks our highest welfare. So following God's commands brings believers great joy, freedom, and certainly not a sense of oppression. John here, he intends to make a contrast. Jesus said of the day's religious rulers, we read in Matthew 23, they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on the shoulders of others. You see, the mass of rules and regulations presented to people at that time could be an intolerable burden on the shoulders of any individual. There's no doubt that John here is recollecting Jesus when he said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus understood that his commands are for our good. They're the maker's instructions that are designed to meet his creature's needs. And the psalmist puts it this way, in keeping them, there is great reward. So God will give us the strength to do what he has commanded us to do. And love will make our sense of burden light. How is this possible? Firstly, it's not the way of God to give us a commandment without also giving us the strength to carry it out. He is by our side and he equips us. What is impossible for us becomes possible with God. And secondly, for love, no duty is too hard and no task too great. Things that we would never do for a stranger, we will willingly attempt for a loved one. Something that might be an impossible sacrifice if a stranger demanded it, becomes a willing gift when love needs it. Let me illustrate this with a little story. So on once met a young boy going to school long before the days when transport was available. And the boy was carrying on his back a smaller boy who is clearly lame and unable to walk. The stranger said to the boy, do you carry him to school every day? Well, yes, said the boy. That must be a heavy burden for you to carry, said the stranger. Oh, no, he's not a burden, said the boy. He's my brother. You see, Jesus' commands are not a burden, but a privilege and an opportunity to show our love. The third thing that we see in this passage is overcoming the world in verses four and five. I don't know about you, but it's really easy to feel really overwhelmed. In this world that we live in right now, and everything that's going on. And yet, verse four tells us that everyone born of God overcomes the world. Genuine Christians are not defeated by the world's hostility or compelled by it to turn from Christ. So, what is this victory that's mentioned in verse four? It's one over the world, by which John means all the powers that are opposed to God and make obedience difficult. Sometimes these are moral pressures, not being seduced by the outlook, the standards and preoccupations of the godless secular society we often live in. Sometimes these are intellectual things, for example, believing arguments that say that God is something that he's actually not. And they might be physical things, uh, like sad cases of persecution that we hear around the world of Christians. But whatever form that the world assaults, on the church that they might take the victory is available for the one born of God the unshakable conviction that the Jesus of history is the Christ as we read in verse one is the pre-existent son of God we read in verse five who became human in order to bring us salvation and life he enables us to triumph over the world Confidence in the person of Jesus is the one weapon against which neither error nor evil or the force of the world can prevail against. Jesus himself said to his disciples on the last night that he was with them, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. All those who are united to Christ in this faith have also overcome the victory is already ours in Christ, but the victory needs to be appropriated in our daily experience. And that occurs as we exercise our faith. The more that a Christian abides in Christ and draws on their savior's limitless resources, the more they will experience victory in overcoming the world. So let me summarize these first five verses since John's argument has come in a full circle. Christian believers are God's children. Born from above. God's children are loved by all who love God. Those who love God also keep his commands. They keep his commands because they overcome the world. And they overcome the world because they are Christian believers born from above. So that's the first longer section. The second section is: faith accepts God's testimony. It asks the question how can people come to faith in the divine human person of Jesus? And John's answer here is that faith depends on testimony. Another word for testimony is evidence or witness. To believe in Jesus, we need to weigh the validity of testimony or evidence concerning him. Verses 6 to 9, they describe the nature of the testimony that's being provided, and then verses 10 to 12, its results. Now, say I told you that I was once hospitalised because of hoovering. Now, you might not be inclined to believe me, uh, but what if it was corroborated by my sister who heard my cries for help? Uh, or perhaps you'd believe me if uh, the witness of my parents was revealed, having driven me to the hospital. The Bible describes how important issues were decided by the testimony of two or three human witnesses. A triple human witness is enough to establish any fact. The gospel or good news concerning Jesus is not merely based on human testimony. Look with me at verses seven and eight. It says, for there are three that testify, the spirit, the water and the blood. Let's look at these three witnesses that affirm the truth concerning Jesus. Verse six speaks of water and blood. Water symbolizes Jesus's baptism and blood symbolizes his death. And these are mentioned because Jesus's earthly ministry began at his baptism and ended at his death. Jesus was the son of God, not only at his baptism, but also at his death. And this truth is extremely important. To deny the incarnation That is that Jesus, the son of God, became flesh and lived among us, would undermine the foundations of the Christian faith and rob us of salvation in Christ. If the son of God did not take on himself our nature in his birth and our sins in his death, then he cannot reconcile us to God. John, he emphasizes not just that Jesus came, but especially that he came by water and blood since it's his blood that cleanses us from sin, which separates us from God. Verse 6 goes on to say, it's the Spirit who testifies. This is undoubtedly a reference to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit testifies to Christ, and he is competent to do so. And as Jesus said, he is the Spirit of truth. So how does the Spirit testify? The Holy Spirit witnesses inwardly. Opening our eyes to see the truth as it is in Jesus. John has written twice already in this letter of how the Spirit is given to us as an indwelling possession. At the start of chapter four, we are shown that it's only by the Holy Spirit that we're able to acknowledge that Jesus is the Lord. In verse nine, John now brings these three witnesses together and declares that they all testify. More than this, the three are in agreement. You see, the f- false witnesses at the trial of Jesus, they seek, sought to discredit him and they did not agree with each other. But the true witnesses, however, here, the spirits, the water and the blood, they seek to accredit Jesus and are in perfect agreement. I'm sure we can think of people, can't we, that say that they cannot believe in Jesus because of lack of evidence. But here we have some really great evidence. We have two sorts of supporting testimony: objective and subjective, historical and experiential, water and blood on one hand, and then the spirit on the other. And since this witness is divine, we ought to humbly receive it. Surely if we're inclined to believe two or three human witnesses, how much more? must a triple divine witness be regarded as convincing? In verse 10, John highlights the impact of accepting or rejecting God's testimony. There's a big difference between believing someone and believing in that person. Believing someone simply accepts that what they say at the time is true. Believing in somebody, however, accepts the whole person and all that that individual stands for. So to believe in Jesus is not simply to accept what he says is true. It's to commit ourselves completely into his hands. So that's on one side, those who accept God's testimony. But what of those who reject God's testimony? They do so when they hear the evidence, the evidence of the actions of Christ, of the scriptures, of God's Holy Spirit, evidence of God himself. But then they turn away from the original message of the gospel. These people are making God out to be a liar. That person will not receive the life that is in Christ. Our final two verses, 11 and 12, they speak of eternal life. Eternal life is a free gift which God gives to those who believe in the son. Eternal life is in God's son and may be found nowhere else. This is because the son is the life. Three important truths are worth Bringing out from this, these verses about eternal life. First, eternal life is not a prize that we earn, but is an undeserved gift. Secondly, it's found in Christ. In order to give us life, God both gave and continues to give us his Son. Thirdly, this gift of life in Christ is a present possession, it's already been given to those who believe in Jesus. And it can be received and enjoyed here and now. So faith keeps God's commands and accepts God's testimony. Faith in the son leads to life. My question I want to leave with you is, do you have this life in all its fullness? Let me pray as we finish. Thank you, God, that you love us. Thank you that you offer new life through your son. Help us to grow in faith, in love and in obedience. Help us to love you more deeply and may this be reflected in our love for our Christian brothers and sisters in action and in truth. Help us to keep your commands and accept the testimony in your son, Jesus. Thank you that your commands are not burdensome, but bring us freedom and fulfillment. We thank you that you are a wise and a loving father who seeks our highest welfare. May following your commands be a privilege and an opportunity to show our love for you. We're sorry for the ways that we've become overwhelmed and allow the world to get on top of us. Please help us to continue to look to you, Jesus, as one who has overcome the world and whose yoke is easy and burden light. May we rest in you. I'm aware that some of us here tonight uh, maybe haven't put our trust in you. Would they recognize that your testimony, Jesus, is true? Holy Spirit, would you open their eyes to the truth in Jesus and would they accept the salvation that you offer? Thank you that in the sun we have life. Thank you that it's not a prize to earn, but a free gift. Would we accept this as a present possession and enjoy you here and now? We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.